Amen. What an incredible worship service so far. It is good to see you. Man, it is, it is always good to gather together to start our week in worship. I'm so glad you're here. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of Judges. The book of Judges, it's in the Old Testament if you're new to the Bible. If you, in fact, if you didn't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. It's on page 228 in our Bible. We're going to pick up the story in Judges chapter Six. Judges chapter 6. As you turn there, we are in a study that's taking us through the book of Judges, looking at the life and leadership of the judges that God gave to his people to lead his people so that we might learn how we too can lead others to experience immeasurably more, more of God, more of his presence, more of his power, so that we could lead people to see God change their lives. And it was so cool about the stories. Every week we look at a new judge and each judge, whether in their successes or their struggles, has something to significant to teach us about how we can lead others. Today's no, uh, no, uh, no exception. We're going to look at the story of Gideon, who has much to say about how we lead others with a kind of courage that comes from God. You ever find yourself in a situation where you feel like you need courage? Never. Never find yourself in a situation like we live in a world where we need courage. If you're going to make any kind of difference in this world, you need, you need courage. And in fact, like, can you imagine if God were to call you to do something that was far above your skill and ability? Like, can you think of something? Maybe God is calling you. I don't have to think back or imagine. I can just simply remember because I remember God calling us to launch a church a few years ago. And I thought, God, I've seen some incredible churches get launched. I've seen God change lives through these new churches. But I cannot fathom you using me to launch a new church. Right? Whatever it is, we all have these fears in the back of our mind. Um, I was reading about different fears that come to mind for people. We can go through a list of like fears and phobias. But you know like the number one fear people have? It's the fear of public speaking, which means more people are afraid of public speak, speaking than they are of dying. Which means people, if you were at a funeral, most people would rather be in the box than up front delivering the sermon. Like, Can you imagine that? I thought about that. I was like, you know what? What I do is kind of scary. Like, um, it's so many things that God calls us to do take a tremendous amount of courage. That's somewhat of a silly example, but no matter who you are or where you find yourself, I promise you, if you will lean in to hear God's voice, he's calling you to do something that's going to require an extraordinary amount of courage. How do we muster such great courage? Do we dig down deep? Do we... uh, get self-help, motivational books or studies or watch movies or go to seminars? Where does courage come from? We're going to look at the story of Gideon, but before we do, I want to start in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this morning and start our week in worship, gather together as your people to make much of you. Father, we're going to read a story that's almost 3,500 years old, and as we do, I pray that you would help us see who you are, that we might stand in awe of the way you lead your people to lead others to experience immeasurably more. Father, we're going to read through this story, and I think it's going to speak to every one of our souls. I pray that as your Holy Spirit goes to work, that you would sanctify us, which means you would shape us, that we might leave today this time together with you, with your people, in your word, under the power and authority of your Holy Spirit, looking more like you than when we arrived. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Also, Lord, help me get through this. This is a lot of ground to cover today. The story of Gideon, Judges chapter 6. I want to read the first few verses, and then we'll talk through it. Judges chapter 6, verse 1 starts this way. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven 
years. Verse 2, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel, people of Israel, God's people, made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites, the enemies of God's people, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And they would leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Let's stop right there for a few minutes because that already gives us a lot to consider. I mean, first of all, we see the story, the same cycle being repeated over and over again. If you're joining us for, I don't know, even the second week in a row, you've seen that the people of Israel are going through the same cycle where things go pretty well. And God blesses his people and he's established them in the land flowing with milk and honey, this promised land that he led them to and fulfilled his promise. And things start to go really well with God's people. So what do God's people do? They lean in and they get really excited about God. No, they grow comfortable and complacent in their commitment to God. And they begin to unite themselves with the people in whose land they live. And instead of leaning more and more into God, they start to go the way of the world in which they live. And so suffering comes upon God's people and it gets out of control very quickly. There's confidence conflict with the, the enemies of God, the nations that are established in the land where they're trying to land. They, the Midianites here in this story, they come in and they consume all of the crops of God's people. And, uh, and they take all of the things that are necessary for life. It makes me think about it. And I don't know if I'm dating myself, but it makes me think about that old Pixar movie, A Bug's Life. You ever see that? I know like the college kids have never heard of that. They think it's in black and white. But the rest of us, like that was a pretty fun movie. Like they, these, these ants, they work all year to get these crops and then the locusts come in. That's kind of the story that's taking place in Gideon, more or less. Uh, they work so hard to, to grow their crops and to raise their livestock. And the Midianites, the people in whose land they live, these evil people who are oppressing God's people, they cozy up to them and think that they're going to be friends. But instead, the Midianites come in and they take everything that Israel has re- gathered for life. And it's a crazy cycle. Things go well and they turn against God and they get out of control. And I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking as we make our way through this study, like, I don't know about you. I am just so thankful that we have evolved as a people, and that we don't fall into the trap of doing the exact same thing. We would never see things going well in our life, right, and think, man, God is so good and so gracious. I show up, and there's more money than I need, and I've got a great church family. You know what? I'm going to start turning my back on God, and things are going to get rough, and we're going to cry out to God, and he's going to bail us out again and again and again and again. Here's the thing. This story, if we aren't careful, is every single one of our stories. That when we see things going well, instead of giving God credit and growing closer to him, we grow comfortable, even complacent in our commitment to him. We wander away from God, and then we wonder why things are so wildly out of control. That was the story of the judges. 
generation after generation. It could be our marriage, our finances, our family, on and on and on. We start to wonder why things are so out of control. And I love, we're talking about this in our community group this week, why did God preserve this story for us? Because it seems like every time we turn the page, it's the same story. And I was thinking about it, it's because it is our story. And every time I read the Old Testament, I think about what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, to help them understand the context and the setting and the purpose of the Old Testament. To the church gathered in Corinth, much like the church gathered here today, Paul writes this, he says, Now these things, speaking of the Old Testament and their stories preserved for us in the Scriptures, these things happened to them, to those in the Old Testament, as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So why are these stories preserved for us? Paul tells us right here in 1 Corinthians. He says these things that we read about, these stories of people walking away from God and falling into sin and stumbling and struggling and suffering and then turning back to God and God sending a Savior and on and on again. They're preserved for us to hopefully keep us from stumbling over the same kind of things. Like, therefore, let anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Like, look where you're watching. And here's the thing. Isn't it more fun and a whole lot more comfortable to watch someone else fall than to stumble and fall yourself? Like, no one likes falling, but we love to watch people fall. I mean, for example, if you want to watch people fall, we put like a brand new speed bump in the back there coming out of the sound booth uh, to protect people. But instead of protecting people, everyone falls over. So if like you get here early, which no one at Eastside ever does, just turn your chair around and watch people. And every person that crosses that threshold, well, like a speed bump, stumbles and falls. And hopefully you won't do it. The foolish thing would be is if we watch people come in one after another, stumble over the speed bump, and then we walked past it and did the same thing. Right, like that would be silly. Paul says these things were written for us in the Bible, in the Old Testament, so that we can see their story and we can realize that their temptation, their struggles, their sin is the same temptation and struggle and sin that we wrestle with. And maybe, maybe if we look back and see how God leads his people faithfully through the Old Testament, instead of growing comfortable and complacent in our commitment to God, we will lean in and lead a life for God so that he can lead people to himself through us. The the story starts, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so what does God do? God just gives the people what they want. We've seen this over and over and over again. God didn't rain down hail from heaven. He didn't wipe his people out. The people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, cozied up to the world in which they lived. They started going the way of the world, and God just simply gave them what they want. If you think the world can take better care of you and provide for you than I can, God says, why don't you see what the world has to offer? If you're going to cozy up with the Midianites, these people that I have said are opposed to God, why don't you see what they have to offer? I'm guessing things went well for a short while, or the Israelites, it's like if you, uh, it's like, yeah, I'm sure things went well for a little while, or the Israelites would have pulled back. But the Midianites took God's people in and they introduced them to their gods and they intermarried among these pagan people. And all of a sudden, the Midianites have seen how good it is to have God's blessing. And so instead of following God, they just swoop in and try to take the blessings from God's people. And the Midianites came up, they raided the land. And what did the people do? It says, it says in verse 2, because the hand of Midian overpowered Israel and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves in the strongholds. It goes on in verse 6, it says, And and Israel was brought very low because of the people of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. 
So the Midianites came in, they ransacked the land. The Israelites, instead of fighting back or having courage, they cowered in the caves. They created these cutouts in the mountains so they could find a place to hide. And they, for seven years, it says they were just decimated. They were brought low by their enemy. And so the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. There's so much application in this story. But one of the things that is so encouraging, have you ever realized, like when you read this story or when you live your story, that you're never so far from God that you can't cry out to God? I mean, the people of God at this point in the story, they've been in this cycle time and time again, but in this, this cycle for seven years, seven years of cozying up to the enemies that God warned them about, seven years of trying to do things uh, the world's way. And then when things went sideways and got out of control, they tried to take control. And instead of leaning into God, they tried to carve their own way out. And they hid in the mountains and they they were trying to live life, but they realized they were living no life at all. And things had gotten worse than they could imagine. And so they cried out to God. And it shows us these 3,000 years later that it doesn't matter how far we are from God or how much we've uh, made a mess of our life, we can always cry out to God. The Israelites were crying out from the caves, these things that they cut into the mounds, crying out for God to help. And I think when you just think about your life, like to get a little personal, it doesn't matter how much of a mess you've made of your marriage. You know, maybe you and your husband and wife, you're sleeping in different rooms and you haven't spoken for a long time and finances are separate. You think, man, this thing is just a mess. We know it would be uh, dishonoring to God to try to divorce and divide what God has joined together, but this has made a mess. The Bible would say you're, you've never made too much of a mess to cry out for God. Or like just the financial side of it. You realize that I've done this the world's way for far too long and now I owe the world more interest on my debt than I can pay. And you feel like it's just such a mess and and you're ashamed to even admit it. You haven't given to the church or given to any kind of ministry in years because you can't find the margin to give generously like God commands and you know that you've made a mess of your life. You're never too far gone to follow Dave Ramsey or cry out for God, right? Like, I mean, there's practical steps out of it. But it doesn't matter if you've made a, a regrets relationally and you feel like, man, I never thought I would be the person in this position. And I thought I could be more pure and just have so much regret and wonder if you'll ever be able to find someone and do it the right way. You're never made too much of a mess to cry out for God. The last time we sin can be the last time we struggle with that sin if we let the Holy Spirit come in and shape our life. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean it's not going to be a struggle. But we cry out to God, and God cares for his people. In fact, he cares so much for his people, he is quick to intervene as soon as God's people cry out. It's not going to be on the screen because it just came to mind, but James, the brother of Jesus, would say so simply, if we draw near to God, he will what? draw near to us. It's a promise. Like, it's so simple. We've grown up in church, or we've spent some time around church, and it just makes sense. We expect that of God. But how humbling that if we draw near to God, it doesn't say, like, if you draw near to God and jump through these hoops and give this amount of money or show it this many times, it just simply says, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. The promise of God is no matter how far we've gone, no matter how much of a mess we've made, no matter what we've tried to do to make, uh, get control of our life or mess up our life, he draws near to us. And so he does in the story of Gideon because God and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Verse 7 says, When the people of Israel, these, these people who were trying to follow God but had made a mess of their life, cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, verse 8 says, The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now, Stop right here. The people of God are being oppressed by this enemy that is greater than they can wrap their mind around. They're growing their crops. They're going through the motions. They're watering the fields, planting. What, I don't know the order. What do you do? Plant the seed, toilet, 
I'm not a farmer. You work the soil, plant the seed, water it, go to Publix. I don't know the story. Like, they couldn't go to Publix. That's kind of the thing. They're going through the motions. The crop would come up. They would have the harvest. And the Midianites would come in like locusts and just ravage everything they had. And they cry out to God. And I have to think, because they know the story of God and the character of God, they expect God to send a Savior. But God doesn't send a Savior. What does he send? Okay, thank you. But the Lord said, it's an open book test, you know. Good job over here, guys. I don't know if you know, you can open the book. It's page 228 in the Bibles we give you. Uh, Judges chapter 6 in your Bible. It says, and the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And I think this is significant because he didn't send a savior to solve their problem. He sent them a prophet to help them hear the voice of God. And I wonder if sometimes, if not oftentimes, what we need more than anything else, we know that God has already sent a savior, and we'll get there in a few minutes, But as we try to follow God, as we struggle and stumble and find ourselves far from God, sometimes more than anything else, we just simply need to hear the voice of God. What we want is God to send a Savior and fix all of our problems. When we find ourselves in a financial situation, what we want is God to send us a winning lottery ticket without ever paying the lottery to pay all the bills and get us out of the mess. But what God often does is he sends someone or sends us his word so that we can hear where the problem really is. And God is going to send a Savior. We're going to celebrate that this week and next week and the week after that uh, for the rest of our life. But here, when the people of God cry out to God because things have uh, gone out of their control and they've gone far from God, he sends a prophet so they can hear the voice of God. I really think so often we look for a Savior. Again, we have a Savior. What we really need, we look for a way out. What we really need is just to hear what God has to say. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is John chapter 10. Jesus himself says, of his disciples, of those people who are trying to follow him, he says, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. What sets us apart as the people of God is that my sheep, they hear my voice. To which you say, how do you hear the voice? Is it like a, a burning bush on the way to the parking lot? No, it's, it's you spend time with God. Jesus, Jesus could have said here, my sheep hear my voice and they spend time with me sitting under the authority of my word. They're not comfortable just showing up on Sunday and hearing the few things that Adam has to say in 45 minutes. They are sitting with me in my word every single day because it is the word, the living word of the living God guiding and directing their life, shaping their life, sanctifying them. They spend time with God. They surround themselves with God's people. They know that showing up and sitting next to people on a Sunday isn't enough, so they get into a community group so they can hear God speak to them. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Sometimes the thing we need more than anything else is just simply hear what God has to say. It's what sets us apart. And so God sends a prophet, and God reminds them through the word of the prophet who he is and what he has accomplished for them. Hear what he says through the prophet. It says, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, I don't know if he showed up with a trumpet blast, said, here, uh, thus saith the Lord. Here, he does say, thus saith the Lord, if you're reading the King James. But he says, here's the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he goes on, he says this, I led you up out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God sent a prophet to remind his people who he was and what he had accomplished for them. Prophet shows up on the scene, and before anything takes place, he just simply says, Hey, I want you to hear what God has to say. This is who God is. He is the same God today 
who led you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He established you as a nation. He, he went before you and he led you through the wilderness. And he, he was the one who parted the Jordan River so you could come into the promised land. And from one city to the next, he drove out the enemies of God's people so that God's people could settle on the land that was rightfully theirs, that he had made for them. He says, that is who God is. And then he says, and you are my people. I am the Lord and I am your God. You belong to me, right? That's my sheep, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. But the Israelites, he says, I told you, you shouldn't be afraid of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Man, feels like God's stepping on our toes a little bit. Here's what I found so convicting this week. Of this whole, this whole message, I don't even know if this is really part of the sermon, but this is what I found so convicting this week. Before I ever prepare a sermon, I will spend a significant amount of time sitting with the text. I will spend time praying through it time and time again so that I can hear first and foremost what God has to say before I start the research component and then prepare the sermon, put it all together. And so this week I was preparing the sermon. I was spending time with God at the counter in our house where I always work and had my Bible open and my computer open. I was beginning to take notes on the things I heard God saying, uh, getting ready to prepare the sermon. And I just felt like God was stepping on my toes. You ever feel like that? Like you're spending time with God? You open your Bible first thing Monday morning, and instead of like getting a really encouraging verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, like you're going to plans and prosper and fill in the gap, coffee cup verse, you read a verse that says like, you have not obeyed me. You're like, thanks, God. That's a really great way to, to start the week. This week I was, I was spinning here. I, just, I, I, like, I kid you not, I was feeling like I was God stepping on my toes. And I was just, I became so grateful. And I began to pray, so grateful, because sometimes God stepping on our toes shows us the shortcomings in our life that are shortchanging our relationship with God. We call that today conviction. The Holy Spirit speaks through his word, the same word that I've read more times than I can count. And he says, this is who I am, God says to his people. I have gone before you. I've accomplished incredible things. I've driven out your enemies. I've established you where you are on purpose, for a purpose. I told you, you don't have to be afraid. But why are you afraid? Because you have not obeyed me. And the conviction I walked away with is, when do we find ourselves afraid? We find ourselves afraid when we find ourselves far from God. When we're not hearing his voice and we're not following him. When, we, when we're not hearing his voice and we're not trusting that what he says is good and following him and walking in obedience. And here's the thing, like, I know that sounds harsh. And I don't mean for it to sound harsh. Like, if you're wrestling with anxiety and fear, I want you to hear what I have to say next as we look through God's word. But, like, we find ourselves crippled with fear when we find ourselves far from God. I don't mean it to sound harsh. I mean it to sound like an invitation to abide in Christ. Because here's the thing. I don't know about you. I am never afraid when I am with someone that is completely in control. Right? Like, if you have an armed escort, you're never afraid because they're completely in control. And I've never had an armed escort. I just assume that's the case. But I was thinking about it this week. I'm never afraid when I'm with someone who's in complete control. But when I try to take control, I can become riddled with anxiety. And even in simple things. A few weeks ago, my wife and I took our three-and-a-half-year-old daughter away on a trip before our new baby comes. And I was so excited about the trip. I know I've already told you about it. But uh, we were hoping that it would be refreshing. Like the three of us getting away one last time before a baby comes. But I'm going to be honest, it was not refreshing. Um, maybe we set the bar too high. I took a wife that was seven months pregnant on a four-hour road trip with a toddler in the back seat. Like we were doomed to fail before we started. I think they found a little bit of refreshment, but I didn't. Here's why. As I was kind of thinking about it after the fact, because I was responsible for everything. 
I mean, it wasn't that my wife didn't offer to help. I just rejected her help. It's like, no, 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 I'll take care of it. I'll take care of you. I'll treat you. And so, like, I booked the hotels without asking her opinion. And then the whole way there, I was afraid, like, is, is the hotel going to smell like smoke? Are there going to be enough parking lots? Is there going to be food for breakfast? Is the food going to be edible? Like, the whole time, these thoughts are going through my mind. What's it going to be like? And I reserved the rental car. So we're driving there. I'm thinking, like, is the car going to stink? Is it going to, you know, is it going to get us there? Is it going to get us back? Which it did not. We had three rental cars on a three-day three trip. And so, you know, there are a lot of reasons for anxiety. We're coming back, and my wife just said, this was really nice. Thank you for planning. It's like, <laughs> my pleasure. Um, and she said, was it refreshing? And I said, not even a little bit. And I think I heard her feelings, but she said, why? I said, because I was anxious about every single thing. And I started, she said, well, when was the last trip you think you were refreshed? And I said, the last trip before I married you, which sounded really harsh. But I, what I meant is because I wasn't in charge. I was going with someone else who was in complete control. When I was a kid on vacation, my dad took care of everything. I didn't pay a single bill. I never worried about where we were going for dinner or what kind of car we were going to drive. I just got in and went with someone. And it's a silly illustration, but I can find myself dealing with anxiety and like really big things. Like you wake me up in the middle of the night almost every night thinking about our church. Why aren't they? Why are they? I don't know. But even in the small things, like just the spring training trip, here's the thing. It's an invitation to abide in Christ because when we're with someone who is in complete control, we never have to be afraid. And this is the invitation of Jesus. I want you to hear what uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi in the first century. He says this. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, put the first one back up to me in verse 6. Now, this sounds overly simplistic. Do not be anxious about anything. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands because it would make you anxious, but did you ever struggle with anxiety? And if you open the Bible, you don't show your hands, uh, but anyway, struggle with anxiety. We all do. Like, we all do in one way or another, right? And so when we're wrestling with anxiety, we open the Bible, and, and your friend, you go to community group, and you're in community group, and you're confessing your fears and your anxieties, and they say, it's okay, God has a word for you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 just says, so simply says, Todd, do not be anxious about anything. And so often we just period, right? Like, period, stop right there. And you think, that's the most unhelpful advice you've ever given me. How am I supposed to not be anxious? But God doesn't put a period there, does he? He goes on and he gives us instruction. He says, do not be anxious about anything. That is impossible. Correct. He goes on, he says, but in everything, from a spring training trip to how we're making disciples and everything in between, from how you're going to spend your finances and how you're going to raise your kids and everything in between, by prayer and supplication, which just basically means pray and tell God what you're thinking and what you need, with thanksgiving, if you have your own Bible, if you have one of our Bibles, circle the word with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Because here's the thing, God is a big God. He can handle all that is on our mind. But when Paul tells the church, do not be anxious, but pray with thanksgiving. So first thing is like when you get anxious, if you're dealing with anxiety and fear, you find it crippling, and maybe no one else knows, but you just feel like you're suffocating under the weight of your fears. When you get anxious, let it be a prompt that it's time to pray. And I mean like in the moment. And you think, well, that's kind of crazy. I get anxious when I'm driving. You don't have to close your eyes to pray, right? Pray with your eyes open. At least one of them, right? Keep your eyes open, but pray. And you think, well, I, you know, I get anxious at work. Just stop and pray. 
No one else even has to know you do it. And if they do know you're doing it, just tell them what you're doing. What are they going to do? Get upset with you for praying? When you get anxious, just pray. But he says this. He says, pray with thanksgiving. I was praying through this passage this week, and I was thinking about it. I think that's significant. So often I go over that, like, do not be anxious. Okay, thanks, God. But pray. Okay, God can handle your request. Okay. But do it with thanksgiving. Why? Why with thanksgiving? Because when, we, when we're anxious and when we're, when we're fearful and we start to pray and we pray with thanksgiving, it reminds us of God's goodness. And it reminds us of his grace. And it reminds us that he has carried us along every step of the way, every day as we have kept in step with him. And all of a sudden, as we pray with thanksgiving, our fears, I promise you, start to fade into the background. Maybe not quickly, but they start to fade. And God comes to the front of mind. And I know this because I do this. I, I joke, but, you know, we, every week trying to build this church as a body of believers, to make disciples, to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. Very rarely does a night go by that sometime in the middle of the night, I don't wake up thinking about how are we doing? Where, how can we do better? What's going on? How can we improve? And I start to get anxious. And I, my mind starts to go a million miles an hour. And I think about things. And I create scenarios and situations that are far-fetched. Like, we're going to run out of money. We're going to do this. And I just learned in the middle of the night, my eyes are already closed. Pray. And I start to thank God. God, I'm so thankful that you called us to be part of a movement of people in the east side of Orlando to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. I know that it doesn't look like, you know, we're accomplishing all the things that we set out to accomplish. But God, I start to thank you for the lives that you've changed. These people were meeting you for the very first time. These are people who are far from you, deed church, that have made their way back to you. And you not only save them, but you're now saving their family through their faith. And God, we're watching people engage in the mission of Jesus. People who've known Jesus their entire life, making disciples. God, we're getting to watch other people baptize people. God, thank you so much. And in about 30 seconds in the middle of the night, I can go back to sleep. But I pray and I think. Now, um, yeah, that's the truth of God. Like, I know it seems like that's a far-fetched solution for your fears. But when you find yourself dealing with anxiety, let it be a prompt to pray and pray with thanksgiving. We get, we, we get anxious when we try to take control of things that only God can control. But when we remind ourselves through our time of prayer that God is good and gracious and cares for us, that he sees things that we cannot see and he knows what we need and we know what we need it sets our anxieties at ease the another apostle the apostle peter wrote in one of his letters humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god humble is a really nice way to say surrender control surrender your control therefore under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you that you don't have to do this on your own that you're serving at the pleasure of a king who cares for your most intimate needs, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We don't have time to get into it, but you know why I think Israel found themselves so afraid? is because they began serving other gods, the gods of the people in whose land they lived. Not that they forgot about God, but they were adding to their worship of God these other idols that they thought would give them things that God was slow to give them, which we do the same thing, right? Like we think if we're struggling with loneliness, instead of leaning into God, if we can just find a relationship, then everything will go well. And we will compromise in, in, in service of that relationship. We find ourselves anxious because we're holding on to something that God never had for us. And the list goes on and on and on. But God is more capable, more mighty than we can comprehend, and he cares for every detail. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. The people were afraid. They had wandered far from God. 
but God calls them even when they lacked courage. Um, I think everything that's worth anything in my life, we're going to talk about courage eventually. I think everything that's worth anything in my life came from a season where I struggled with courage. I, I, I mean that seriously. The things I'm most grateful for are the things that God called me to when I least had courage. Things like marriage. Like, I'm so grateful that I've been married almost 10 years to the most wonderful woman in the world. But those few days and weeks and months leading up to the proposal, I was scared to death. Like, I'm going to tell, I'm 20-something years old. I'm going to tell this girl that I'm going to be with her forever. Like, forever? Like, that's terrifying. And I would pray and God say, this is the girl I have for you. And in hindsight, I'm grateful. Going into a life of ministry, I was thinking about all the, the, uh, the things we wouldn't have and God said, the things wouldn't go well, or we'd run out of money. And God says, this is what I've called you to. And he's carried us along every step of the way. Starting a church. God, you've got to be kidding me. You want me to start a church from nothing? Like, who is going to join us? And God calls us, and he's carried us. Having a child, having another child. Everything that's worth anything in my life came from a season where I was afraid and lacked courage. Courage comes from hearing God's voice. And God's voice that confirms God's call. These are the seasons that God speaks so clearly. All right. That's the introduction to today's sermon. (laughs) We haven't even gotten to Gideon. Like, I don't think, unless I missed him. Judges chapter 6, verse 11, it says, This is the prophet, or this is the judge we came to talk about. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, not not Oprah, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I love this because we read right past this because we're so far removed from their culture. But when we first meet Gideon, he is a coward like the rest of God's people. He's not hiding in a cave, but he's hiding in this wine press. And I found a real life picture. I think this is the wine press that Gideon was hiding in. I have no idea, but that's a, it's a hole in the ground. Every stone hole in the ground looks like what? A hole in the ground. Gideon is down in the wine press trying to uh, work on the wheat so that the, the Midianites, like maybe they'll pass by and miss him so he has some food to take home for his family. He's hiding. He's not ready to go to war and fight against the enemies of God and the courage of God and the power of God and lead God's people. When God shows up, he, he's hiding in the stone, in a hole, in the ground. And what does God do? He shows up and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. To which I think even Gideon had to like, I'm in a hole in the ground by myself, but who are you speaking to? I'm not a mighty man of valor. I'm trying to make enough bread for my family to eat. But here's a really cool thing about God. God doesn't call us based on our circumstances. God calls us by who he has created and called us to be. Like when God sees us, and we can get into a whole thing about putting on the righteousness of Christ, he sees who we are in Jesus. He doesn't see our most shameful moments when we put our faith in Jesus. He doesn't see our biggest regrets or our most debilitating circumstances. He doesn't see our handicaps. He sees us as the person that he has created and called us to be. Here Gideon, hiding in the hole in the ground, he says, O mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And Gideon goes on in verse 13, he says, please, sir. If the Lord is with us, then why are all these things happening to us? 
And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And I think if this is how I know God is speaking and not me, because I would have lambasted Gideon for this. Well, why is the world the way it is? Because you went the way of the world. Like you cozied up to the world and you wonder why you're living under their oppression. Just look around. But God doesn't do that. It says this. It says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. I think the church can learn a lesson from this because myself included, so often we are quick to look at our circumstances and question God. We're so quick to look at our outside circumstances and cower in fear. We're so quick to look at our circumstances and wonder what in the world can that God do? And maybe we're even quick to criticize other people, other disciple makers, other churches, because we don't understand in our circumstances. Man, I fall into this trap all the time. God, like, I know when I spend time with you, I hear your word, and you say go, and you say make disciples and transform the spiritual landscape and plant churches, you plant churches, but God... Have you not seen our circumstances, the world we live in, the place we're situated, the lack of resources, the lack of people at times? God, but he doesn't say that. He says, go. Go in this might of yours and save Israel. Man, what a mission from the mighty hand of Midian, from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. God sends Gideon to save his people. I don't know where you are situated in life right now, but here's what I do know. That if you're following Jesus, you're a leader of people. That you are placed where you are on purpose for a purpose. It could be in a workplace where you have a grand total of zero direct reports. But you are a leader in your workplace as you lead other people to follow Jesus. It could be in your school where the person sitting next to you doesn't even like you, but you are put there on purpose to point people to Jesus. Jesus says you are the light of the world. A city on a hill, it cannot be hidden. It's not about our circumstances. It's about the God who is sending us. Go. Am I not sending you? And I love Gideon because I can relate. He doesn't stop there. He's already blamed God for his circumstances. Then he starts looking at his weakness. He says, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, I am the least in my father's family. And the Lord said to him this, he says, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the hand of the Midianites as one man. Three or four times I've circled in my Bible in this passage alone, but I will be with you. Remember, Jesus, God showed up with a prophet, and he says, I am the Lord your God. I've gone before you. Here he says to Gideon, I'm calling you. And Gideon starts to make his objections and his questions. And he's looking at his circumstances. And he says, it really doesn't matter about your circumstances, Gideon. I am the one sending you. And I'm not sending you out there on your own. I am going with you. The question I wonder is, like, where is God calling you to lead others? We've been in this study for the last four or five or six weeks, however long, looking at these stories of how we can lead others. My question I have put before you is, like, are you leading others? Have you stepped into your calling? Are you leading others to experience God the way that you know God, more of his, inviting them to experience more of his power and his presence in their life? Maybe it's the neighbor next door. Maybe it's the teller at the grocery store that you see every single Tuesday when you buy your groceries and meal prep a daily. I don't know. Like, whatever the situation. Are you leading others to experience more of Jesus? Jesus would say to his disciples, I think in a very similar way, 1,500 years or so after this, after the, after the cross, 
after the resurrection, after a period of 40 days of training his disciples, it says, now the 11 disciples went up to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They finally learned their lesson to hear his voice and go where he says. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. I think that's hilarious. He just was raised from the dead, and they're still having questions. But in Jesus came, and he said to them, he said this, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And two disciples, the followers of Jesus, not so different from you and I in the first century, he says this, he says, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Invite people to know me the way that you know me of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, to hear my voice, to follow me. And then he says this in verse 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here's the good news. Why do we spend so much time studying the Old Testament? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I really try to get through the whole story of Gideon. It's going to take us probably three weeks to get through this story. But what we don't have time to unpack today is the angel of the Lord here in Gideon's story is probably what theologians call a Christophany. It is probably Jesus. Before, like before baby Jesus in a manger, this is Jesus. And he makes his appearance throughout the Old Testament a few times to call people to make a difference, to lead others. And here, Jesus shows up to Gideon hiding in a hole in the ground, and he says, I want you to go and save my people. Now, obviously, God is the one who's going to go before him. God is the one who's going to bring salvation. But God is looking for people willing to hear the voice of God and follow him to lead others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. Just simply inviting people to know God the way you know God. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, it is the, churches say this every year, but we say it because we mean it. It is the perfect opportunity to invite someone, invite someone to come with you to know Jesus the way you know Jesus. This is the only week of the year that I'll do the hard part for you. The rest of the time, we want you telling them about Jesus, but next week, I promise to tell them about Jesus. Invite someone to celebrate Easter with us at Eastside. We're going to host next week an egg hunt for kids from birth through elementary school at 9.30. And we're going to have a quick, like, continental brunch in between and then worship just like we do every Sunday here at 10.30. And the focus we're going to talk about is how we can follow Jesus. No matter how many times God has called us, how can we answer the call to follow Jesus? There are about 8 billion invite cards sprinkled around the worship space, in the lobby. They're already in your car. You know, you took them last week. If not, I'll put them in your car. Take one of these. Have courage hear the call of God and invite someone to come with you because here's the thing, you know how I have gained courage if I could just speak personally? I've gained courage by spending time with God and watching him work. And I mean that. Like, that's not just preacher talk. I gain my courage from spending time with God, hearing what he has to say, but I gain a tremendous amount of courage by walking with him and watching him work. When I struggle with fear and anxiety, I think about how God is working in your life and it draws me closer to him. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to gather together as your people to make much of you. Father, we're so thankful that you would preserve for us in the pages of your holy scripture these stories, stories about judges in the Old Testament, the people of God, stories that don't seem to connect to our story at all. But Father, when we dig deeper, we realize Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Father, I pray that we would follow you with a greater sense of conviction and even a greater sense of calling than Gideon because we know the rest of the story. 
You're not just the God who led us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God, you are the God who led us out of sin and slavery and subjection to the enemy. You're the God who set us free and saved us from the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And God, it is so easy to forget how good and gracious you are and to hide in a hole. But Father, you have called us for so much more. Let us not be a bunch of bored Christians showing up week in and week out to spend time with a few friends. But God, let us go and invite people to experience you the way that we have been so blessed to experience you. Father, I pray that you would give us a profound sense of courage as we hear your call this week, that maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, we would sit with you in your Bible. Just, God, direct our fingers as we open the pages that you might speak to us through the word. And if it doesn't make sense, let us keep reading until you say something that causes us to stand in awe of you. And then, Father, let us get it from that place and go find someone and tell them, that you are our God and we are your people. We're so thankful for Jesus who makes this all possible. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.